Amen. I think our younger children can be dismissed to Children's Church at this time. The rest of you will want to get out your message outline that says the truth of Christ on it. We have been going through the Gospel of John, racing through at breakneck speed. We are up to John 8. This is the 29th Sermon on John, and there is a ways to go. But turn to John chapter 8, we're in verse, starting at verse 31 today. Let me go ahead and read that. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham, and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me, because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing what Abraham did. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we've come to your word this morning, this Easter morning. We ask that you would teach us about Jesus, that your spirit would open our eyes and our hearts and our minds that we would hear Jesus, that we would see Jesus, that we would know Jesus this morning. We ask this in his name. Amen. As I came to this passage of uh, Scripture this week, I remembered the story of James. James was born in 1765. That was a few years ago. He's almost as old as Jerry. James was the illegitimate son of a prominent English nobleman and a direct descendant of King Henry VII. However, because of his illegitimate birth, he was disowned by his father. His father told him it wasn't true. He wasn't really his son. His father told him he didn't belong and he wasn't allowed in his father's house. His father told him that for all practical purposes, he didn't know him. Think about that. And so left alone, James was denied a rich inheritance through his true father, and he was refused British citizenship. And because of this rejection, James felt compelled to succeed at whatever he did, and he became a brilliant student. James became one of England's leading scientists, by the age of 22. 
1829, 64 years later, James died. He left a considerable fortune. And the terms of James' will stipulated that his entire fortune was to go to one recipient. Now, the English scientific community hoped that he had chosen one of their favorite institutions to receive all that money. But when the terms of the will were made public, they were shocked. James had written in his will, Just as England rejected me, so I have rejected England. See, during James' lifetime, England fought and lost two bitter wars with her rebellious colonies in America. And so to show his contempt for those who rejected him, he gave everything to the United States government for the establishment of a scientific institution in the nation's capital. James was James Smithson. The institution he provided for is known to all of us as the Smithsonian Institution to this day recognized as one of the finest and most prominent institutions of its kind in the world. James Smithson was told, it's not true. You don't belong. We don't know you. You're not one of us. You are not a son. You're not part of the family. And I think James Smithson is a great example for us why we need to be people of the truth. Why we need to be people who know and are known, who belong, who are part of the family of truth, who belong to the truth. Why we need to be people who know the truth. So we don't wind up being people of rejection. And that sets the stage for our text this morning in John 8 where the first thing we learn is the truth sets us free. The truth sets us free. Verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Now he starts in verse 31, he says, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. There's a cause and effect lesson here. Jesus says, abide in my word, and you'll be a true disciple. Therefore, we have to ask the question, what does it mean to abide in his word? Is it merely a case of giving it intellectual assent mentally agreeing with what Jesus says, or does it involve more than that? The word abide is often translated uh, as continue or remain or hold to in other translations. It is the Greek word menete. It's the same word that's used several times in John chapter 15, which is a famous sort of abide passage. It says there several times, abide in me, Jesus is speaking, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. The branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, 
Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And Jesus is teaching in this passage and in John 8 that a disciple is one who holds on to his teaching with a firm grasp, one who continues in his word no matter what the situation or circumstance. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul said, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold on to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. It seems to me that Jesus is not seeking the short-term follower. He wants his disciples to hold, to abide, to continue, to remain, to stand firm in his word. They are not only to hear what he teaches, they're to obey it, sitting at his feet, living under his authority, being at home in his word. Merely read God's word, and eventually you will master it. Abide in God's word, live in God's word, and eventually it will master you. And then Jesus says, verse 32, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Well, first question, what is the truth? It's the truth that God sent his son to live for us and to die for us. It's the truth that we reach our full potential and enjoyment of life only when we live in harmony with the God who made us. It's the truth that sometimes we suffer and we experience pain and difficulty in such a way that our response can and should bring glory to God. It's the truth that it's the Son's death on the cross at Calvary that takes away our sin. And it's the truth that only as we trust in Him, as we put our full and complete faith in Christ, that we'll know the peace of having our sins forgiven and the satisfaction of entering into a life of service to God. And this truth is a truth that we can never know apart from Christ. In John 14, uh, when we get there, uh, some weeks from now, we will read that Jesus tells us that he himself is the truth. In John 16, we will read that Jesus uh, tells us that the Holy Spirit will guide us into all truth, for he is the spirit of truth. In John 17, we will read that Jesus tells us that God's word is truth. Therefore, know the truth. Know God's word and God's Son, being guided by God's Spirit, and you will be free. Next question. Free from what? Free from what? I think Jesus is using it in sort of an all-encompassing way. He's talking about freedom from the whole way of the world, with its concentration on the things of here and now, so that our focus can change from our present struggles to his future kingdom. Jesus is talking about the freedom that brings us near to God, so our concern is with him and with doing his will. Jesus is talking about freedom from being caught up with our own selfish desires, from wallowing in the darkness of sin and evil, from our alienation uh, with God, from our whole concentration on the world. Jesus is saying, know the truth, and you are free. Free from sin, free from self-deception, free from disobedience. You're no longer slaves to sin, but now you're free, free to follow Christ. Because the truth not only sets us free, the truth makes us family. 
The truth makes us family. That's the second blank there. Starting at verse 34. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So Jesus goes on here to teach, if you're not free from sin, then you're a slave to sin. And if you're a slave, you're not a member of the family. But if you're free, then you're no longer a slave. Now you're a son. And a son is a member of the family forever. Now you belong. You belong forever. You're a member of God's family forever. What did James Smithson want? He wanted to belong. He wanted to be a member of the family. Jesus is saying, if you're free, you're a son. If you're a son, you're in the family. He goes on to say, verse 36, so if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. This is important because it shows us that no one else can set you free. Only Christ. Only Christ can give you the spirit of sonship. Only Christ can make you a child of God. Only Christ can make you a member of the family. Only Christ can set you free. And you can only be set free from slavery to sin if you will know the truth, if you will know Christ. And to know the truth means you must abide in his word. You must continue in his teaching. But if you do remain, then Christ will set you free and make you a part of God's family. The truth sets you free. And the truth makes you family. All because the truth shows us the Father. The truth shows us the Father. Verse 37. says there, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing what Abraham did. We read in these verses how the Jews claim Abraham as their father. What they're saying is, we're already members of God's chosen people, God's family, through Abraham, so we don't need what you're offering. Back in verse 33, they said, we're offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. Well, think about that. The Jews are trying to tell Jesus they already have what he offers. They're children of Abraham, and that's all they need. But there's a couple of problems here. He said they've never been enslaved to anyone. Well, that's not exactly true. They have been slaves. Moses led them out of captivity in Egypt. They were taken exile by the Babylonians. They lived under the thumb of the Persians and then the Greeks. And they're currently, as this is happening, they're under Roman occupation. Slavery is something they have grown accustomed to. And just as they had been made slaves physically, they allowed themselves to become slaves spiritually because sin now ruled in their hearts. They were no longer children of God or children of Abraham, but children of Satan himself. He's going to get that in the next passage. And Christ is letting them, everyone know that regardless of what father you claim, you prove who your real father is by your actions. First, he tells him, verse 37, you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. There's no room in their hearts for his word. This immediately eliminates them as one of his disciples. Not only do they not 
abide in his word. They don't even have room. They have no place for his word. And when the people, whether it's them or us, have no room in our lives, no place in our minds or in our hearts for the word of God, then we turn towards evil. We grow cold to Christ when we go without his word. We become like the Pharisees, still religious, but far from God. Second, Jesus shows us by his words who his father is because he says he speaks about what he's seen when he's been with the father. He's speaking the truth. To speak the truth requires spending time with God, and so it is for us as well. If we're going to be his disciples, if we're going to be people of the truth, then we need to be spending time with God. And third, Christ shows us by his deeds who his father is because he acts like his father. I don't know how many guys in the room have heard some phrase like that. He acts like his father. That's happened in my home more than once. But who better for Jesus to act like than his father? He said back, if you remember in John 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. And now he's challenging these people in the same manner. He says, verse 39, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing what Abraham did. He's letting them know that their evil conduct, their evil attitudes reveal who their real father is. And it ain't Abraham. And again, there's a great lesson for us here. You don't want to have to face the question, if you call yourself a Christian, why don't you do the things that Christ did? After all, that's what we're commanded to do. 1 John 2, 6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Our Lord was locked in a battle with people who hated him. They opposed him so much, their evil intent pushed away any real religion far from them. They had become for some time now slaves to sin. But despite their hatred of him, Jesus still loved them. After all, he had come as the truth, with the truth of God's word, to set them free from the sin that so thoroughly ensnared them. And what we don't see and what's really easy to miss in this passage is that there's two groups of people that Jesus is talking to here. Obviously, he's addressing those who opposed him, who don't agree with him, telling them uh, back in verse 37, you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. And there's another group of people mixed in here. If you look at the very beginning of our passage, how it begins, verse 31, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him. The New Testament scholar Leon Morris writes, This section is addressed to those who believe and to those who do not believe. Those who believe and those who yet don't believe. Clearly, they're inclined to think that what Jesus said was true, but they're not prepared to yield him the far-reaching allegiance that real trust in him implies. This is a dangerous spiritual state. He says to recognize that truth is in Jesus and to do nothing about it means that in effect one arranges himself with the enemies of the Lord. 
And there's two issues here which are the separating issues. First issue, as we've seen throughout John, is believing in him. Belief or faith is the driving purpose of this whole book. The second issue, however, is knowing the truth, and in particular knowing the truth that is Christ. Today is Easter. Today we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead on the third day, according to the scriptures. And just before he was crucified, Jesus appeared before Pontius Pilate. They had a remarkable exchange of words. We find it in John 18. It says, Then Pilate said to him, So, you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? What is truth? You know, on some level, I think we have to sympathize with Pilate, don't we? I mean, he wasn't in an easy situation. He was far from home, set down in a strange culture. He didn't understand what Christ said when he claimed to have come to bear witness to the truth. I'm not convinced he was being um, dismissive as much as he was just flat confused. And under the circumstances, we might have wondered the same thing. We often wonder about the truth today, don't we? I mean, we live like Pilate in a strange and sometimes bewildering world. Our parents didn't, we think, uh, usually incorrectly. We think, and they often remember, that their world was smaller, tighter, more surely structured. They knew what they believed about everything. They'd been taught by their parents and their grandparents. Society reinforced their understanding of life and the world around them. And if they wanted to know what they thought about something, they had but to consult the opinions that had been bequeathed to them by earlier generations. But then the first truly global wars in the history of the world, with the enormous transcultural migrations they produced, plus the growth of modern travel, all the development of uh, television and mass communications and now instant communications, all that changed. Think about what's happened even in the last 50 years. We had a generation of American young people in the 60s and 70s began going to Asia to study Buddhism. Well-to-do natives in the Pacific Islands began importing Japanese TV sets and American air conditioners. Rock and roll circled the globe. Llama rugs from Peru were sold at roadside stands in the Carolinas. Teenagers in Greenland, Italy, and Korea went nuts over blue jeans. Primitive dances in Zimbabwe were shown on television screens in Montana. And centuries-old uh, worldviews and belief structures began to crumble. And our children were born into this world. They've never known anything different where everything is up for grabs and all dogma, all absolutes, all authority are open to debate. And we all found ourselves at one time or another asking Pilate's question, what is truth? And so we swarmed to church on Easter to pay homage to the one who rose from the dead. That's what our faith teaches, isn't it? Perhaps it's the one place where our narrow old faith and the wild new world of 
speculation converge. They agree on the possibility and provide a reason for our being here. Now, I always think when I come to Easter, it's usually one of our bigger services, and I have a feeling I know why at least some of you are here this morning. Some of you come for the music. Certain hymns and songs uh, make a lot more sense when we sing them on Easter. Christ the Lord is risen today. Hallelujah. And I like how we sang that. I love how we sing Easter music. Lots of joy and enthusiasm like we're going to wake the dead. Some folks might not be crazy about church music the rest of the year, but they seldom complain about Easter music. If you're here for the music, I hope you weren't disappointed. Some of you are here because you're visiting family or friends, and perhaps they invited you to come to church. Easter is a great time to spend with family and friends. It's very special to experience worship with those we love, and I hope your visit is a good one. I'm not naive. I know some are here under just a little duress. I mean, after all, it's Easter Sunday goes the plea. Please come to church with me. Maybe the request was a bit more persuasive. It's Easter Sunday, and you're going to church whether you like it or not. And you're muttering under your breath, are we having fun yet? There might be some here because you're a bit curious about this whole crucifixion, resurrection obsession that we Christians have. You want to see what it's all about. Some are here to see who else came. Some are here because you're always here. But I wonder if we really understood Christ's resurrection, would any of us dare come to church, especially on Easter Sunday? You see, those who crucified Jesus had a lot of problems with him. Jesus didn't comply with their wishes. He wouldn't conform to their plans. He kept preaching good news to the poor. He talked about liberating those who were captive and giving sight to those who were blind and freeing those who were oppressed. And Jesus wouldn't submit himself to their theological view of the world. He wouldn't succumb to their narrow views about God. He kept talking about the inauguration of God's reign as though he were some kind of Messiah. They had to do something. When you're the religious establishment, you can't maintain your credibility with someone like Jesus going around undermining it all the time. They had to act. And so on a Friday, they took matters into their own hands and they got rid of their problems on Friday. Think about it. Jesus hanging on a cross is not going to be any trouble to anybody. We got them right where we want them, they said. No more talking about loving your enemies now, Jesus. No more of this going the extra mile now. No more doing lunch with Zacchaeus now, Jesus. No more pointed stories about lost sheep and lost coins and lost kids. And Jesus lying in a tomb is not going to be any trouble to anybody. The women went to the tomb essentially to embalm their dead friend. And the disciples are hiding out, thinking about how they're going to put their lives back together again. They're already reminiscing about what it would have been like to be with him. Remember the good times we had with Jesus. The strolls along the beach, walking on the water. The nice lunch with the crowd. Remember his stories. You can't forget the one about the friendly Samaritan 
Remember how he used to talk about how things could be, how they really could be? And now they have to face the possibility that their problems are just beginning. Jesus lying in a tomb is not going to be any trouble to anybody. But begin talking about a resurrected Jesus and all heaven might break loose. The kingdom of God stuff might start actually happening. We might start loving our enemies. We'll start having to go the second mile. We're going to have to speak up when we see injustice against the poor. If we're not careful, we'll find ourselves yearning for righteousness. We're going to have to start practicing this good news stuff, this gospel Jesus proclaims. When you stop to think about it, a risen Jesus is a real problem. And when you come to church on Easter thinking you'll enjoy the music or visit with family or friends or maybe even tolerate another Easter sermon, not with this risen Jesus roaming around. This risen Jesus is too much of a problem to allow that because his gospel is dangerous, risky, messy business. It expects you to roll up your sleeves and get your hands dirty for somebody else's children. It means that you'll become amazing grace to the lonely and the forgotten. I wonder if that we really understood the resurrection if any of us would ever come to church. No wonder the disciples were terrified. Now maybe we don't all come very often, but we're not convinced. But on Easter, something draws us. Something primordial, immemorial, something instinctive, something that says this mystery lies at the heart of life, even all truth. And what if we reoriented our lives around it? I mean, suppose it's true that Christ rose from the dead, the tomb was empty, and Jesus appeared to the disciples, that Christianity has been proclaiming the truth all these years, that God was in Christ showing us the nature of reality, inviting us into a new way of seeing everything. What would happen if we restructured our entire existence around this truth and made it the linchpin of everything we believed and did from here on out? What if we were to come face to face with Jesus, face to face with the Master? It would be the best proof you ever had, wouldn't it, that the spiritual world is as real as the physical world? You would experience yourself as belonging to God the way Mary Magdalene did that very first Easter when she fell at Jesus' feet crying, Rabboni, Master. You would see the whole future in terms of the kingdom of God begin to serve that kingdom with a a fervor that would surprise even you. And you would never, ever again be afraid of death. That's the way it would be. Our lives would be completely transformed. Nothing would ever be the same again. And that's just what might happen to any of us on any Sunday. The gospel of Jesus Christ is dangerous, messy, risky business because it liberates, it transforms, it offers freedom. It's terrifying. It demands faith. To act on that which is not and never will be completely 100% understood this side of heaven. The way it was with Pilate, wasn't it? He began by asking, What is truth? Then, after he'd been with Jesus a little while, 
He had spoken with Jesus. He had observed his behavior under enormous pressure. He saw that truth somehow had its dwelling place in this strangely dignified and otherworldly man. Jesus' enemies had accused him of posing as the king of the Jews and trying to start a rebellion against Rome. They brought pressure on Pilate to commit him to death by crucifixion. But Pilate had the last word. If you remember, they took Jesus off to Golgotha, the site of execution. They sent him with a sign to put over his head. We read it in John 19. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Pilate knew he had come face to face with the truth. Jesus was truly a king. Unfortunately, Pilate didn't restructure his life around his discovery. Perhaps we shall do better because it's Easter Sunday. And not only is the tomb empty, he is risen. He is risen indeed. We need to pray. Take a moment to do that and I'll close.